This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. So David, today I get to introduce you to one of my closest friends. This is James Barron. He's a reporter and columnist on the Metropolitan staff of the New York Times. He and I started working at the Times together in 1977. We were copy boys. Yes, that's right. That's what they called us. Copy boys. Copy boys. And James has gone on to have a remarkable career at the Times. Among the highlights of that career is the minute-to-minute stories he wrote of the 9-11 attacks in 2001. He's written for virtually every section of the paper. Some serious blackouts, one of which we shared together in 1977, but he's also written a nine-part series early on in the century that followed one piano as Steinway and Sons built it from start to finish. And that became a book, Piano, The Making of a Steinway Concert Grand. And he also has recently published The One Cent Magenta, Inside Mm -hmm. the Quest to Own the Most Valuable Stamp in the World. So welcome, James. Meet David and let's talk. Hey, Marion. I thought we were copy people. I thought we were copy persons. I think that's very liberal of you. I think I was still a copy boy at that time, yes. James. You, that's very woke of you, but I don't think that was the case back <laughs> then. Things we didn't know. <laughs> exactly. Well, James, our listeners, as you know, are writers, and you, of course, have been writing your whole life, uh, but you're doing it on the hardest of deadlines, which, of course, is newspaper. So let's start there and talk about stamina. What is it that drives you? Is it caffeine? Is it curiosity? The desire for publication? Getting the truth out there in the world? What gets you writing every day? All of the above. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so how much caffeine? No, just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> Lately, it's actually had to be decaf. Oh, no, um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's better that, it's better that way. Um, no, it's... Some of it is just you want to get to the bottom of of something. So Mm -hmm. I guess that I guess I lean more toward the curiosity Mm -hmm. and and some of it is telling it as well as you can. So I don't know what of the A, B, C or D possibilities when I checked all of the above that Mm -hmm. falls into. Uh, But but some but a lot of it is almost rethinking a story and, and, and seeing if there isn't some more effective way to tell it. Language matters. I think language matters more even in this day and age because people are reading news on their phones. Yes. So the window is different and it's, and the experience is different. The window into the news is different. The experience of reading on a phone is different. It's not the, sort of supermarket experience that you used to have with the newspaper where there was there were all of these stories and they were sort of arranged in an order 
that was more apparent than it is on a phone, at least to me. Mm. Yes, it's true. Sure. And can we just take a moment of Hosanna, Hosanna, and just say this man said language matters. I know. Oh, God. We've forgotten that. So many people have just forgotten that language is so important. It is. And I suspect you could ice that into a cake, David. I think I'll I'll needlepoint it onto something and someone else can tattoo it onto themselves. But it does matter. And the delight in language is what's so apparent in all of your work, James. The, the, The sheer, complete and absolute delight I have reading your stuff and knowing that you put that word, that one word in there, and I can just see you laughing out loud or smiling or quietly smiling to yourself as you as you got that word into that sentence that made me, you know, say, uh, uh, as we say in the newspaper world, golly, Martha, to someone else, you know, that it's a golly, Martha moment when you look up from a newspaper and want to share it with someone else. So I wonder about a golly, Martha moment for you. You, as I mentioned in your intro, you've written two mass market books, uh, the most recent of which is the One Cent Magenta, the quest to, to own the most valuable stamp in the world. So what was your golly, Martha moment there? Like what happened along the way in reporting in your usual life? Did you just hear about this stamp? What did you know all your life? And give us that tale, you know, a shortened version, but also include, you know, because <laughs> yes, you know I've Mary. heard the story <laughs> and I've known you for all these years. But also let's talk about what made you know there was a book there. So first, let's just talk about what, when did you run into this story? I went to a party mm. and I got there early. The party was for a, the brother of somebody I went to college with. I didn't know the brother, and when I got there, there weren't that many people there. And this was in one of those private clubs in New York City, you know, that look, that was built at a cost of a million dollars when a million dollars was real money. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, marble floors and, and huge paintings and a room the size of a basketball court. Mm-hmm. There are only four or five people there, and one of them was an auctioneer I had written about before. I'd written about him when he sold the Declaration of Independence. He yeah. actually sold it twice, a copy of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd written about him when he sold something called the Bay Psalm Book, which was the first book printed in the colonies. I guess that would be back in the, what, 16th mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe the 17th century? 17th century. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And he once even got me into the vault at the Federal Reserve because there was a gold oh, wow. coin that he had sold. And somehow they had gotten the Federal Re- Federal Reserve to store it. I guess the Fed will do that if you have something expensive and rare and that came out of the mint. And they were going and it needed to go from the Federal Reserve uptown to the New York Historical Society where it was going to be displayed. He called up and said, you want to go to the vault of the Federal Reserve? Well, of course I did. Do I? I mean, you know, that's sort of a... a, a, Gosh, Molly, I'd like to. (laughs) And that, and and, you know, so there you go. Mm -hmm. Off we went. And um, so here I am at the party, and he's the only person of the five or six people in the room whom I recognized. So I went over to him and essentially said, what have you done for me lately? Because... There was always a story with him. He always had something going on, even if it wasn't quite ready to have an auction or to 
you know, do this. Mm-hmm. He always had something going on. And he said, well, I'm going to sell the world's most expensive stamp, but there's a problem. <laughs> there's some people in London and they may want to dip it in benzene. And the problem with benzene is, mm, yeah. dunk, poof, no more stamp. Yeah. Well, benzene has been a running gag with one of my other friends since I lived in an apartment back when we were working at the Times together, Marion, mm-hmm. because we were convinced my landlord at the time was storing benzene in the basement in a 55-gallon drum. We were convinced of this because the next-door neighbor, who hated the landlord, said so. He thought we were all going to be blown to smithereens. The house is, the, the brownstone is still there, so so I guess there was no benzene or... I guess it was, there was none. Or it was inert. I'm just trying to throw a word around that sounds like I could use it, you know, inert. Mm-hmm. Language matters. There so when go. did you? So what was it that made you say there's a book here? I mean, at what point on this think thought process did it start right there, or did it start later? It started there as there's a story here mm-hmm. because what I said was, he said he was going. It started right there, but it started as a story because I thought if he's really going to London the following week when I'm on vacation and they insist on the benzene, I want to be there. So I said, we're going to be on vacation, but I can get from there to London. Let me know. I'll be on the next plane. He, oh. didn't, call, he didn't call, but he called a couple of weeks later. He got through London without having to have any benzene, and then he arranged to take the stamp to the National Postal Museum at the Smithsonian in mm-hmm. Washington. Mm-hmm. And he called and said, they're going to examine it there using... Uh, processes and equipment similar to what was done in London. And he said, would you like to go? Well, there we go. There we go, like the Federal Reserve. Now, David, you were a stamp collector as a kid, right? I was a stamp collector. So you totally relate to this story. I do. I relate to it. I was fanatical about it. And I knew about the one cent magenta. I knew the story. And, And as I had said, I actually tried to mimic it as a kid. And I wanted to like pawn it off and make three or $400 because I'd heard how rare it was. And of course that never happened. And, uh, and now someone else has paid $9.5 million, I believe for the most recent, uh, for the most recent sale. And maybe we ought to make clear the reason Mm -hmm. it went for that. The reason you could have pawned off your copies at three or $400 was there's only one, one cent magenta. Exactly. As far as anybody knows, All of the others, uh, I think about 500 or so of them were printed uh, because these were accidental rarities. Uh, It's what happens when your ship doesn't come in. Uh, The boat with stamps to British Guiana, then a a British colony, somehow somebody didn't put enough British London-made stamps on the ship. And when it got to British Guiana, the postmaster must have panicked. And he went to the local newspaper and got them to print these stamps, which were just provisional. They were the closest thing to temporary, I guess, that that they had in in the postal world. Mm -hmm. And there were stamps to sell to ship the newspapers, correct? That's right. Um, And uh, the one-cent ones were for newspapers. There were also four-cent stamps 
uh, printed it at the same time, and those were for letters. Even then, newspapers got a break. So lots of story here, right? Lots of story. And so I have a question for you, James. So before the One Cent Magenta, you wrote a nine-part series for the Times that chronicled the building of a Steinway piano, and that made it into a book also. So as you were reporting the series, were you thinking, hey, this could make a really good book? Or were you testing material out on the the public to see maybe if they would be interested in it? Or did someone come along and say, hey, Jane, what a great idea. Turn this into a book. How David, this is another one of your questions where the answer is all of the above. All the above. (laughs) Do you do that with every do you do that with every question? (laughs) No, but unfortunately, you're going to fail my multiple choice. Well, I guess the question then, if if the answer is all of the above, the question becomes something else. You, I know you play the piano, for instance, but I don't know if you collected stamps. And at the heart of this question is really, how much does somebody, a writer, need to know about something before you set out to write about it? I mean, a lot of writers, I talk to a lot of writers mm-hmm. in my in my work, and they're, they get stuck in the idea of mastery of a thing and forget that one of the greatest stories in the world is the adventure tale of learning about it along the way. And that's what you've exquisitely done in both of these stories. I mean, I know you didn't know how to build a Steinway. And wasn't isn't the story about the adventure? And, and shouldn't people not wait to be masters of things? Maybe they can go on a tale like this. It seems like that's what you're telling us in your work. Yeah, that is the challenge. I think. I mean, I knew, I felt I knew enough about music and enough about pianos that I, that that was in my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I had thought in high school, maybe I could go to music school. I decided I wasn't good enough to do that. But the sensibility was there and, and the knowledge was there. And I guess of what you could do with a piano and even some of the workings of it just from watching the guys who would tune the one we had at home. Mm -hmm. I collected stamps for a couple of years, maybe between when I was 11 and 13 or something, Uh, but it didn't stay with me the way music did. And so there was a steeper learning curve, learning about stamps and the history of the postal system which figures in this mm-hmm. um, because and because stamps are part of how Britain reached to the world. And, and in the days when the sun never set on the British Empire, every one of those colonies had stamps that came out of London. And so mm-hmm. there's also almost the, if you took this a couple of steps farther than I did at the time, there's almost the foreign policy element of stamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so you you do begin to realize this how central both of those things were at the points in in time that mattered. I mean the piano was basically uh, an 18th the 18th century's idea of a machine. You know, it didn't have an engine because they didn't have engines in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And then Steinway uh, kind of uh, tweaked it in the 19th century. And that's basically with, with uh, tweaks since then, what they've been making for a hundred and however many years, 160 some years. Mm-hmm. Um, stamps still exist, although they're not what they were. I mean, email has undercut that. Mm-hmm. Amazon ha- and, and the other uh, online services that then get things to us have 
revived, I guess, the Postal Service or, or at least given them weight uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, of tonnage of things to deliver and, and, and packages to deliver. But, you know, when is the last time you paid a bill and put a stamp on an envelope to pay it? Well, I still do. But I think, but I think in terms of the, the writing thing, what, what I find so intriguing about this is that you didn't wait till you knew everything about the postal system. You didn't yes, wait until you knew everything exactly. about pianos. Because you never write a word. There we go. That's what I was waiting for you to say. Because we. Oh, sorry. I, I right? would have done it sooner if I'd realized <laughs> where we were going. If it wasn't for your exquisite love of language, you would have said it shorter. I and, know. <laughs> and that might be, but that might also be where writing for a newspaper for so long comes in because you always kind of have to cut off and start writing. And so mm-hmm. you can only write what you know. You have to get as much together in the time you have. And, and you know, I was certainly not going to know as much as the keeper of the Royal Philatelic Collection at, uh, at the Palace in London. Yeah. But I yeah. can tell you about going to meet him yeah, and um, uh, and how he turned out to be a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Well, there you go. Something to talk about. And what's interesting, James, is that what you're saying is that you, you learned enough to be able to write about the topic, just what you needed in order to move forward with the stories. And of course, your stories, they, they cover everything from reporting on the World Trade Center, from music, from terrorism. What is the quality that you consider to be the utmost importance for a writer to have? There's going to be another one of these long silences here. And okay. I noticed that that was not a multiple choice. No, I, I crossed out my multiple choices. I'm just giving you one question. I guess this gets back to what we were saying earlier. You have to mm-hmm. have something, the ability to, uh, the curiosity or the ability to absorb things and synthesize facts and, and, and impressions and make them fit together in a way that um, is true to the picture. Mm-hmm. It's, almost like if, it's almost like if you're taking a snapshot of something with a camera, how do you then describe it so that it's as close to what you're seeing? Mm-hmm. What, if, you read, right. if you read it, is it the, it, will the person reading behind you, will, the, will your reader or your editor see the same things that you think are important? Mm, that's lovely. You know, I watched yeah. you, I watched when we, you and I were copy boys together, you and I watched and marveled at the guys who sat in the front row of that mass, what was once a massive newsroom at the New York Times. I think there were 460 people sitting in the room that you and I worked wow. in typing. Typing, all of them typing, some of them screaming, many of them smoking, and th- those of us who were copy boys running around. But the thing that always caught my eye were the two guys in the front, the rewrite guys. And they were taking phone calls from kids like us, other reporters, people all over the city who were their eyes and ears on the street when there was a disaster. So, James, the other day you covered the helicopter crash in New York City That's right. on top of a yes. building. And I, I made the assumption that you weren't on the street, but that someone else was on the street. I could be wrong. Maybe you ran out. We've, we've all done that, run out to the street with no, a notebook. No, but here's something. At the yeah. risk of uh, totally preempting the question, mm-hmm. I had gone out about an hour before that because my wife and I were supposed to go to a party that night and I had bought a new 
blazer to wear. And it was not going to be ready until that day. So I went out at lunchtime to pick it up. And I remember walking along about four or five blocks from where the helicopter hit the, went into the building uh, later, looking up and thinking, I'm glad I'm not flying today. Oh. You're not going wow. to get out of LaGuardia because this is just too thick. I couldn't see the tops of the buildings. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was yeah. on the phone at some point to a, uh, to a source type, and somehow we were talking about what a t- lousy, murky day it was. And I said much the same thing. You know, I was out an hour ago and mm-hmm. would need to be stuck at the airport. 15 minutes after that is about when we got word of the, of the helicopter. Mm-hmm. And that person sent me an email saying, you know, saying something like, you know, what just happened? You know, were you right. psychic or something? She right. No, not psychic, like just a news person. But, but let's even, talk about that craft. Even that he- gave me the moment to bring in the weather and how right. bad the day was. So right. some of it is just being in effect, being yourself, being me, and bringing to it what you've already observed. Got it. But using this as an example, did you then rush down to the site and start interviewing no, people? In, How did in you... the in, in the internet world is different from the world Marion and I knew, in that everything has to be written even faster. So in this mm-hmm. case, uh, it's not that far, but I didn't go up there. We sent people, mm-hmm. and and they sent things. Instead of calling now, uh, they used their phones to email or to do it in Slack so mm-hmm. that I could read from that. And that's pretty much how we, how we began putting it together to get it up on the web fast enough. And then it's kind of like building a house. In a way, this is... What I learned on on 9-11, writing the stories uh, about the 9-11 attacks for uh, nytimes.com, those were the first stories uh, written in real time that nytimes.com had ever run. Mm -hmm. Everything else at that time was essentially the story written for the 6 o'clock deadline or the 6.30 deadline for the next day's paper. And at about 7 o'clock, they went up online. And during the day, there was an AP story as a placeholder. So I wanted to talk about that for a second, because I think for other writers, this is this is the lesson I was talking about watching with wonder those rewrite guys. So you're taking in information from a variety of sources on deadline very quickly, and you're synthesizing it into one story that is going right out. In the old days, it was going onto the front page in a few hours. Now it's going right out. And you've got to get it right. You've got to get it right the first time. So I just want to talk about, for writing skills, the ability to stay calm and use discernment at the same time. You Just that, that ability to look at information and make the choices about what goes in and what doesn't. And there's got to be a lot of chaos going on around you with things coming in. How do you synthesize in a way... Is it the training of knowing what a New York Times story looks and feels like? Is it some innate sense of what's the best thing to lead with? How does that process work? It's hard to explain, Marion, partly because I've done it so long. Mm-hmm. It almost is innate at this point. Mm. Uh, and I liked it when you used the word discernment, uh, because I think that's an important part of what's going on. Yes. You know inherently 
what you need to know to describe a situation, to describe a helicopter that apparently was trying to land on top of a building because he couldn't get back to the heliport. You know what you need to describe when it's, you know, maybe the biggest story of our lifetime, when planes are going, planes go into the World Trade Center and it turns out into the Pentagon and into the field in Pennsylvania. Mm. Uh, it, but it's sort of like building a house. You start with what you know, and then you can add a little room here or an addition there as more material becomes available. That's how, or, or as, or as you find, in other words, as more material becomes available, well, that's a not very good way of saying as you learn more, as you mm -hmm. learn enough to be confident in what you're saying. Yes. That goes beyond what you put up in the beginning. And I guess for newspaper people, that's how the world of the web has changed. It's almost like in the old days of afternoon newspapers where they would uh, write different versions every hour or, or every 90 minutes. Uh, and, and, and I think that's about the best I can do on that, on that answer. It's, there's a, a process. I don't know how to explain it. I'm not sure if you came and watched, it would make any more sense than when we were young and watching the people who did it then. How did they know which, in those days, you, you know, in those days they would read clips, the literally stories from past issues of the paper that were filed by topic, so they'd been cut out, and, mm -hmm. and they were little mm -hmm. clippings filed by topic, and you could ask for the topic folder. So if you asked for helicopter crashes, there'd be a folder of helicopter, you know, all the helicopter crashes in New York in a certain period. How did you know so, what to read from that? You, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. you just have to be fast and 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 pay attention. Yeah. So, James, with your vast knowledge of what you've done and also your exquisite skills that you've honed over the years working in the newspaper environment, I'm curious, as a writer, if you had an idea for a novel and you sat down, how different would that experience be in your mind? Of course, this is just, we're just tossing this out here. But I'm just curious, do you think that kind of a mind and the kind of the way you work is can be turned toward novel? I don't know. I've got a great opening scene in my head, but I can't figure where it's going to go. <laughs> well, you just need to have somebody call you in and give you some facts, James, and you'll start typing, you know? Oh, oh somebody, good. Yeah. Oh, good. We'll do that for you if you like. If you send us the opening scene, we'll pretend we're reporters on the street and send you your next, you know. And then you can tell us what goes on. Right. Well, we solved that, that problem. Phew. Well, what's, how about we just ask you what's your next thing you hope to be working on? I mean, obviously any minute your phone could go off and you could be called to duty, but are you thinking about another book? Um, I am. I haven't got anything definite yet, but I'm thinking. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much. So this has just been a joy. Thank you so much. The book is The One Cent Magenta, Inside the Quest to Own the Most Valuable Stamp in the World. The author is James Barron, found every day in the pages of the New York Times. And don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to us wherever you go. Mm -hmm.